0: This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Beblé,
1: and I'm Yannick Mangan. And
0: what's the topic for this
1: week, Yannick? Thoughts on Swift and Swift UI.
0: Good. But before we start on that topic, we have some follow-up. So let me start with that. In episode 154, the rich guy from California car, and yes, I have a lot of follow-up uh, in the past few episodes about this. I uh, about this episode. Excuse me. I gave an overview of what's coming in the electric car market for the next year. And one of the main sections of this episode uh focused on electric pickup trucks. And there was one that I mentioned in it that were there were a lot of rumors regarding the Ford F-150 electric. Sing more or less it was like we didn't have an exact date, but that was coming in 2022. And this year has been quite interesting for this pickup truck because Ford revealed it and it also revealed its official name it will be called the ford f-150 lightning and some if we have some uh car fanatics in the audience some might remember the lightning name was used in the past for the most like powerful version of uh previous f-150s pickup truck in the uh 90s and the, in the early 2000s
1: it's in grand turismo 4
0: Really? Oh, I yeah. forgot about that. I guess it's the like early 2001, the the one that is all-rounded and everything. So yeah, okay. And I forgot about that, but you were correct. So this new pickup will come out next year, as the earlier rumor suggested. All new, all of these, all of the uh, Lightning models will be all-wheel drive. Will support dual electric motors, and will be the what call, call what Ford's called the Super Crew Cab. So more or less four doors with the most space in the cabin there is going to be two battery sizes. the first one will offer around 230 miles of range of course those numbers are from four not from the EPA or any other governing bodies the extended battery pack or the second one will offer around 300 miles of range also as discussed in that episode this uh one this f-150 will be quite huge in uh in my book for electric pickup and there's a few reasons now that we have an official look at it with some specs and the designs first it does look like most of the recent internal combustion engine F-150. No for futuristic designs like Rivian. Yes, there's a couple of cues uh, especially recently, there's a kind of a design queue, that the light bars are coming back as a dis- car design queue and the uh, Lightning also has that. But overall, if you were to park uh, an F-150 ICE or a, a F-150 Lightning, you would see little differences, but you would recognize it as a more or less 2022 f-150 and for sure nothing crazy like the cybertruck design the second thing why i think it's going to be big on for this market is the price are more or less on par with what you can currently buy today for a ice model or even a hybrid model that was launched in the past few years so the base model will start just below for forty thousand us dollars 40,000 U.S. dollars and the extended range model aka the bigger battery will be in the 50 60 and for sure with more options will go higher and for especially for the extended range model we've seen some numbers in Canadian dollars and those from what I've seen were in the like 55 to 65 k range of course excluding the government rebates so the pricing right as we as it got announced and for sure we'll see when it gets officially released or closer to launch um, is quite great Uh, it's not a luxury pickup truck like the Rivian is or even like the uh, GMC Hummer EV is Uh, it is morally kind of focusing or targeting the Tesla Cybertruck which has similar range and even if you were to compare it with normal F-150s sold today you would literally pay prices that i just mentioned for either like one of the like turbo v6 model or even some of the lighter hybrid models or the most hybrid model engine that uh, ford offers so that's quite interesting and i'm eager to see how this will uh will end up happening in 2022 whether they'll use the same strategy as i'm sure tesla will do too even if they are hitting with low prices by starting by shipping the most expensive model first to kind of like help the production line and then offer the uh, cheaper model da- later on. Last but not least, it does offer a good combo again i said the design was kind of pickup truck familiar for pickup truck people but i think it offers a couple of fust- like nice or futuristic tech that people start to expect from electric cars for sure f- like full multiple screen infotainment system it, it the, the main infotainment screen closely resembles the one you might have seen in the ford mustang mac e with the knob that we discussed in that episode uh, it also we a lot of the technology that we've seen in the ford 450a hybrid where you can use it a lot to charge things uh, or even to power uh, power tools at your construction site uh, but they go even farther than that With the bigger battery pack, where you can use your pickup truck as a power generator for your whole house. It's become more or less of a backup. I'm eager to see what will happen with that because it's kind of, it sounds gimmicky a bit, but the Ford will offer a two way charger which can charge a pickup or the pickup can quote unquote power or charge your home if there's an outage. So there's that. Uh, And overall, they're proposing all of those smaller things and for sure it has a frunk because there's no engine at the front so there's a lot of space in it Uh, they also offer for both the frunk and the bed they also offer scales so you can the car can weigh how many how much weight there is in there and also it it is useful to affect uh, the range calculation that it offers in real time so you can see that ford taught a lot about how people use a pickup truck and how electric range will be affected because of maybe a towing or fooling it with a lot of shit, for example. So it also offers a lot of nice tech gadget that people are expecting these days for ele- from electric cars. So in the I pulled tunings, that's kind of a small summary about it and kind of re- rehashing why I feel I felt it was kind of a big deal even with the rumors and now that's, more or less official that you can like pay a hundred dollars to reserve one already. Uh, why I feel it is a big deal. So you can find more uh, links in the show notes from the verge. I really strongly suggest that you look at the second one I'll put into it, which is more or less, uh, which is titled all Ford's F-150 lightning stacks up against Tesla, against the Tesla Cybertruck and the Armor EV because it compares really spec wise, all the pickup trucks and it's not mentioned in the title, but also include Rivian. So if you're currently shopping for an electric pickup and you don't know where to put your down payment or your like your $100 to $1,000 uh, money to reserve a spot, uh, this is an article that can help you decide. Lastly on that subject, uh, one funny uh, moment that happened this week is that the F-150 Lightning was leaked, quote-unquote, <laughs> part of the President Biden's press tour. So there was a big press tour regarding like, I don't to be honest, I don't recall what it was about. It just, I just recall it, he visited the Ford plant and, and was announcing things. And there was like a lot of Ford pickup trucks behind him, including the Lightning. So it's uh, the other funny moment about that is he got a chance to drive a prototype unit himself, which. The car journalists that were in uh, the Michigan region uh, where Ford is at quarters were not able to. I was watching uh, a video on YouTube this uh, today and the car journalist was already writing passenger seat while uh, some Ford employees were going through their road course. we were going to do their off-road course and the car journalist was there along with the ride and not really, yes, experiencing the prowess of the pickup truck but not making them happen himself in that case so that was two kind of a funny moment with the that launch and president biden next up in episode 158 grand spa con- conspiracy Terrorist ass uh, i went through alternative to electric car and one component that i did not cover part of that episode is literally improvements to current battery technologies that would minimize its downsides and what i mean by its downsides is mainly recharge time i won't say energy density but like energy density versus weight and i think it's the best way to put it and also how it affects the environment. And Yannick this week sent me a quite interesting article from Forbes about aluminum-ion-based batteries. So it's a new company from Australia that is claiming that their own tech based on aluminum-ion will charge 60 times faster than current lithium-ion batteries. It also offers better energy density and it is not using any rare metals or l- way less rare metals than lithium-ion battery, which means they are really easy to recycle compared to what we have to deal with with the rare metals. So it is really an interesting article and it kind of, a, not open in my mind, but it kind of made me realize that I had a blind spot in this episode, which is which was literally, I was l- ignoring any battery technologies i look at other solutions to uh other tech that could improve uh the car today the way that we power cars i should say and it kind of reminds me that maybe i should do uh, no promise here but maybe i should look at to what can we do today or what is being cooked today to improve the downsides of lithium-ion batteries for the future of electric cars and that is it for my follow-up. What about you, Yannick?
1: All right. I have uh, three bits of follow-up that I'm going to get through really quick. Uh, the first is a plug for something on my website. Uh, so I've been working for the past few months on a knowledge base on my website, which is where I am writing a bunch of different uh, articles about various topics and uh v- this week, I actually put out a, an article called In Favor of Dependency Aversion, which is about one of the recurring topics on the show, which was not having too many third party libraries in your code base. Uh, and I believe it is the first bit of writing that I've made about uh, software development practices that has gone on a public website in like at least 10 years or something like that. Uh, so definitely go check it out if you're interested. And uh, there will be more cool stuff coming to the knowledge base over time. Next up is uh some follow-up for episode 150 which was about uh stadia and destiny uh season of the chosen which was the last season of destiny ended on tuesday and uh the reviews of this season have been relatively good and i played it and i enjoyed myself quite a bit so i'm going to put a link in the show notes to Skillup's video review of season of the chosen uh massive improvement on the seasonal model in Destiny 2 with this season. Unfortunately, it seems like the current season has taken a little bit of a step down from that uh, because that's just how Bungie is. But uh, <laughs> definitely recommend to go watch that if you're interested in seeing uh, how good Destiny was last season. Nice. And then for episode 135, uh, that was the episode where we recommended Ooh. handheld games for Le Carvier. Ooh ghost trick which was one of the games that i recommended which is a very pricey uh, ds game is now available yes. on ios again
0: Ooh, that's true you sent me the link about that and i didn't realize i only focus on phoenix right
1: Yeah, so the Ace Attorney games have all been patched and updated for uh, the latest version of iOS, but Ghost Trick was also updated uh, because it's the same creator and the same studio. Uh, So uh, anyone who's interested in playing these games, you can go check it out. It is kind of interesting to see Capcom's on and off uh development cadence for these games because they'll like not maintain them at all and then something will happen to make all the games get off the store temporarily and then like eight months later they all show up again so it's like yeah they're maintained but sometimes there are like blackout zones where you can't actually get them on the store which is very strange (laughs) and not something that i really enjoy but whatever i guess it's better than nothing uh and especially with the news we got recently that um DS cartridges are starting to die. Uh, um, yeah. So DS games were the first ones to use flash ROM instead of mask ROM, which means that if they are not powered regularly, they can die. And, uh, huh. this has become a super notable issue recently because the three DS Pokemon games, the, uh, alpha Ruby and Omega Sapphire or the opposite. I don't remember. It's Oras, So it's alpha Sapphire and Omega Ruby, uh, The European releases of that apparently used really shitty flash ROM, and now people are realizing that the games don't boot anymore. Uh, So that was in the news recently, and it made everyone realize that, oh shit, all the DS games and 3DS games and eventually Swift Swift games have like a 20 to 25 year shelf life at best, uh, which kind of sucks. Hmm... So uh, if you want a version of Ghost Trick that is not going to die while it's in the mail coming to your place after you paid 70 bucks for it, <laughs> uh, go check the iOS App Store. Uh, assuming the iOS App Store is still like, existing after uh, this episode is released because the epic case ends on Monday.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, I just clicked download and the uh, in-app purchase to get all the chapters is... Thirteen ninety nine Canadian dollars, so quite cheap compared to $75.
1: Yeah, and I, I just said that off the top of my head. I don't actually know how much it costs. But.
0: No, no, no you, you, I recall the prices, and $75, whether it's US or CAD, US or USD or CAD, is literally on the spot.
1: Okay, that's it for my follow-up. Now I can get into the main topic, which is something that uh, we have been wanting to talk about for quite a while.
0: Mainly you, I would say. Mainly you.
1: Yeah, so on episode 147, we talked about some side projects that I was interested in developing. Uh, Namely, there was an iTunes replacement called Azalea, and there was a browser for the Gemini protocol, uh, which was called Celestia. And both of these were intended to be uh, SwiftUI apps that were going to teach me how Apple development has changed since I left the scene in 2016. Well, I've sort of (laughs) learned that I don't like modern Apple development. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, I have some strong philosophical disagreements with uh, how Swift uh, Swift and SwiftUI are. Uh, I have low tolerance for unneeded friction and bullshit when I'm working on side projects. And because of that, uh, these projects have not gotten much traction yet. Uh, And if I really have to think about it critically, I would say that if I was in the position to choose a development platform today, I don't think I would be particularly drawn to iOS because of this philosophical divide. So this entire episode is going to be going into why I don't jive with modern Apple development. We're specifically only going to be focusing on Swift and Swift UI. Uh, While I do understand that the Epic case has changed a lot of people's opinions about their relationship with Apple, I think that's a different story for another day. And especially like doing this on the day before uh, the last day of (laughs) testimony is really awkward. So I don't particularly care to get into that. Uh since a lot of the problems that I have are philosophical in nature, I think non-developers are still going to get something out of this episode, although knowledge of development uh, terminology is definitely going to help. I've tried to uh, bunch together all of the more technical stuff at the end of the show, so at least stick with it until <laughs> you stop understanding anything, basically, uh, is what you can try. So let's start out with Swift. But before we talk about Swift, we need to talk about Objective-C. And specifically, Objective-C is design goals and values. So Objective-C was the previous language that we used for Apple development. Uh, It originated back in the 80s on the Next platform. And then when uh, Apple bought Next in the late 90s, it became uh, the language of focus for uh, OS X development uh, since the early 2000s. So Objective-C is built on top of C. Uh, C itself is a low-level language that has very few guardrails, uh, and basically, the point of C at the time was to serve as a kind of portable assembly language. It was a more convenient way to write software uh, with a lot of control over how that software will execute and how it makes use of memory, but maybe not caring so much about what processor in specific you're targeting. C values simplicity and performance, but there are some trade-offs, namely in safety and convenience. So everything you do in C is very simple. There are very few concepts to understand and the, all the building blocks are quite basic and do very little. Um, and if all your basic, uh, if all your building blocks are simple, you can more easily translate those instructions into efficient uh, assembly code that runs fast on whatever processor you're targeting. So the, that fits with the philosophy of the language. Um Of course, like the caveat to that is your building blocks are simple and therefore they have no real checks or guardrails in place. So you can do unsafe things either on purpose or by accident. Uh, And this is where I have to like underline that simplicity does not mean ease of use. It just means it's simple. Uh, In C, you can misuse very basic things like strings and end up with significant security or memory corruption bugs. So because unsafe things are possible, it sort of becomes your responsibility to put those checks and guardrails in yourself. And that makes development in C inconvenient. But for a while, like that was sort of the state of the art technology in terms of how you wrote software. Uh, And C still had a very important place in writing operating systems in particular. So then Objective-C comes along. And Objective-C, it's a thin layer that sits on top of the C language. And what it does is fundamentally it brings object-oriented programming to C. Uh, This is a fancy way of saying that you borrow metaphors from the physical world to make code organization and interoperability of uh, code modules easier to reason about. And uh, the people who invented Objective-C identified that the needs of application developers are different from the needs of the people who are writing the core components of an operating system. Really, the question that they were asking themselves when they were making Objective-C is what's the simplest layer we can build on top of C that brings a huge productivity gain to application developers, while also conserving the simplicity and performance characteristics of C as much as possible. Simplicity did actually end up staying quite high. Uh, The Objective-C runtime is actually quite easy to explain at a a conceptual level. And when you consider that this shit was being uh, done on computers in the 80s, it's especially elegant for the time frame in which it was originating in. Another thing with regards to the simplicity is you don't even really need to know C to actually be able to use Objective-C in most cases. And the proof is, DakotaVie and I are not particularly good C programmers, and yet we've managed (laughs) to have careers as iOS developers. So C is there, but uh, Objective-C is separate enough from what most people consider to be pure C that you can get away with not really knowing pure C.
0: I'd like to revise your statement about my knowledge of C. Okay. You did say that that. I'm not so good at C, but implying that I know some C, and I guess you could say that because of the the limited amount of C++ I did, but don't ever think I wrote anything in C except maybe World.
1: See, I I was assuming that uh, because you have to deal with a bunch of SDKs for various devices that some of them were in C and that you had dealt with them?
0: Oh, you mean at work in Not really. They do have a lot of shitty Objective-C interface, oh, but okay. overall they have an Objective-C interface, so we're good for that.
1: Okay, so I wasn't sure. I was giving you maybe more credit than you deserved, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that's also fine, but I think more or less to say is you can have zero knowledge of C and still write iOS apps and be totally fine.
1: Yeah. Uh, Performance with Objective-C actually stays relatively high. Uh. And the reason for that is that like C is a language of the 70s and uh, Objective-C is a language of the mid to late 80s. And machines had become so much more powerful in that time The the performance penalty of Objective-C in the grand scheme of things was actually quite negligible, especially when you factor in uh, like what is the cost versus what is the gain in productivity. And... If you had something that actually needed to be faster than what Objective-C was able to bring by itself, you always had the option to drop down to C or assembly if you absolutely needed it. So it was incredibly flexible in that matter. Now we get to safety, and this is where it kind of gets interesting. Um, kind of? Yeah. <laughs> so Objective-C objects use reference counting for memory management, and this is a universally applied convention in Objective-C. Uh And you can make the case that having one universally applied agreed upon memory management strategy and API is much safer than it is in C where the approach can vary from library to library and it's up to the individual developer really, Uh, which is inconsistent and the inconsistency makes it unsafe, uh, if you see. Uh, Safe alternatives to all of the risky shit you can do in C exist, so... NS data exists as a safe replacement for byte buffers. NS string and NS mutable string as a safe alternative to string buffers. Uh, so you are much less likely to introduce weird memory corruption bugs and security issues into your software if you're using these classes instead of using C strings and uh, C buffers. Where we get to the stuff that can arguably be considered unsafe, uh, we have stuff like the ID type. And dynamic dispatch, (laughs) which muddy the waters of safety significantly. So the ID uh, type in Objective-C lets you hang on to a reference of any Objective-C object without caring about what type it is. You can just pass it whatever you want, and if it doesn't exist, it doesn't care. Uh, Message passing in dynamic dispatch also means that you can write code that calls method that you can't validate actually exist at compile time. Uh, because something might happen that might make them exist at runtime. So you have to let it compile, and you can't really... Like, maybe you can throw a warning in your versions of Objective-C, but in the past it was just like, oh, well, okay. It it might exist (laughs) when you run it. (laughs) Uh, Exactly.
0: Uh, Okay. It was literally the compiler's reaction to those.
1: Pretty much. Uh, So in both of these cases, if you do something illegal in your code, uh, that's cool. It, it'll compile and then you'll find out when it crashes at runtime. It'll be great. Uh, It's hard to say that this is not unsafe behavior. It is unsafe behavior, but there are a bunch of legitimate and cool uses for this that enables things that you can't do in more static languages. And I read an entire blog post about this that I don't particularly want to get into. Uh, And <laughs> this has enabled a bunch of stuff in Apple's own frameworks, which is why it's kind of weird to see them kind of going the opposite way with Swift. But yeah, it it is unsafe, but I think like some types of unsafety are welcome and some types of unsafety are not welcome. Convenience is massively up and like there are a bunch of reasons for this. Uh, People are just more comfortable with object-oriented programming than they are in figuring out how to do things in C there are a lot of strong language conventions and design patterns that are used all over the place that really facilitate interacting with things in predictable and familiar ways so I think that this is it's great because you don't really have to learn a million ways of interacting with different things everything more or less behaves in predictable ways and that is comfortable to developers and it means that you are used to it, and you get better at it over time, and you are more productive. I have to say that Objective-C is really a slam dunk for what it was trying to do, especially if you consider the time frame it originated in and how much, of, how long its life was overall, um, but it really hit the sweet spot of what application developers want out of a programming language. It's high level enough to see a massive productivity gain, and especially when you couple it with the AppKit frameworks and Interface Builder, which is tooling that made making user interfaces much quicker because you didn't actually have to write them all out in code. It was low level enough to perform remarkably quickly, especially when you dropped dropping out to see uh, if you needed it, but it also had weaknesses and this is great. So, Notably, it's not low level enough for systems programming. There's still too much overhead in Objective C to be used for core parts of the operating system. so a lot of the time the core parts of Mac OS 10, for example, would resort to using C and C++. It's also not high level enough for casual scripting. Uh, part of this is uh, aesthetic reasons, so a lot of people believe that if you're writing a scripting language, uh, the less characters, the better, uh, and Objective C has long method names, so less wordy code is better. Also, nobody wants to memory manage in a script. Uh, Objective-C for much of its life required you to memory manage manually, and that's no good if you're writing a scripting language. Uh, So Objective-C is really the Goldilocks of app development uh, programming languages, but I do want to be fair and say that doesn't mean that everybody liked it. Now, most complaints about Objective-C are aesthetic or tooling related. Uh, generally the complaints are people don't like square brackets, people don't like mm-hmm. long and wordy method names, and people don't like the Xcode sucks at completing the long and wordy <laughs> method names. I think it's mostly the third one and the first one. But
0: <laughs> right. I do have an odd take, though. Oh, um, go ahead. Now that we're kind of like giving an eulogy to our good friend Objective C, yeah, it kind of sounds like this, but I'm not. I'm sure it's not really that. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised that it would be a bit more loved by the people that uh, that if it were more like not like swift as a static language but if it looked more like funk and a word and, and and then you have your parameter in parentheses, and and you have more like a kind of java style syntax if you, you can call do it you know so. about
1: modern Objective c syntax because that was proposed for a while that they actually wanted to make it like a dots and brackets uh language and that sort of got rejected
0: when was that considered as "quote unquote" modern?
1: I want to say, like maybe, uh, like when Rhapsody was happening, maybe. Mm, so uh, it fit
0: with a timeline of uh, it's a no, it's a bit before Objective C 2.0.
1: Yeah, it's way before Objective C 2.0. It's still Objective C 1.0 timeframe, but I, I mm, think okay, it was around then or during the next days. But it's not like, not even like 10.1 time frame. It's before that.
0: Oh, okay. 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 So it's way before 2.0. Yeah, wow. yeah. I didn't know that about that.
1: Interesting. They they wanted that and Objective-C developers were so busy at the time that it didn't happen. But uh Right, I can imagine that. The target audience also at the time was very different because you were talking to a bunch of Objective-C diehards, whereas nowadays you would be talking to a bunch of people who had to learn Objective-C because it's what the iPhone used. Uh, right. So that changes a lot of things. But yeah, like like my Personal problem with these complaints is they are focusing on personal preference and syntax, and they don't actually really have anything to do with how good Objective-C is at what it's trying to do. Uh, And like, don't get me wrong, I totally get disliking things on aesthetic terms because I do plenty of that (laughs) myself. I was
0: about to call you out, but that's fine. You did it it yourself.
1: But it's a separate issue to whether Objective-C is good or not. Also, Objective-C isn't perfect. It could totally be improved. Uh, there are a bunch of things they could do to it. Uh, there were a bunch of theory theorycrafting uh, posts that people were making about where Objective-C should go or what a replacement for Objective-C should be like. They were very far from what Swift ended up being, uh, generally, but um, I will get to that. <laughs> uh, but if I had to actually, like, sum this up, Objective-C, in my eyes, is probably the perfect... Well, the closest we've come to the perfect app development language so far in the history of programming languages for writing GUI applications targeting the desktop and mobile platforms.
0: It's funny that you mentioned this, uh, if you if I may go on a small tangent. Yeah. Um throughout my time developing iOS app, uh we've especially at work, we've been big proponent of using zibs. And I always heard from some of my colleagues that work on the Mac before. And I always heard those stories that while Zibs are okay to good, let's put it this way, like you never really, exp- I think you never never really experience Objective-C's powerfulness and even Apple's great development tools if you haven't ever built a Mac app. Because literally when you use Interface Builder in the Mac, yes, you could go all custom and everything, but it's so nice and fluid from what I've heard. building in mac interfaces through interface builder and using the dynamism in objective c to build those because a lot of it is really like, oh we'll assume that this object has this message implemented at runtime and lucky for you it is it, it did it <laughs> uh but it made development like just quite easy because you were pull put in a couple of parameters to more or less what you see what what is what you get interface and then you click run and it worked
1: yeah, at a philosophical level I didn't want to go too far into the like the history of objective C and all that stuff, but like the the reasoning behind how objective C and its tooling came to be is that they wanted uh vendors to be able to make what they called software ICs which were like these they were essentially going to be modules to your applications that were going to have objects in them and you as the developer would wire it up through interface builder. So you would have like the object that represents like whatever component you're trying to embed and you would draw your outlets and your actions right. uh to that and like th- that interface has stuck for a really long time i'm surprised it, it actually stayed that way that long um but like that was the goal at or- originally and it was a really good approach to that i think right
0: and and that 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 is exactly my point is i felt that even with ios development they kind of moved just enough away from this to kind of feel similar but a little bit foreign and i always felt that i was missing out on a lot of niceties from the tools and the language by never really having to work on a full-on a fully fledged mac app in a development team
1: yeah Okay, so now that we've talked about Objective-C, let's talk about what Swift is trying to do. Swift is not trying to do what Objective-C was trying to do. (laughs) Not at all. This is where my disconnect with Swift as a language lies. Uh, So one of the things that you don't really notice until, well, you try to actually do something in Swift, is Swift doesn't have the luxury of trying to build the layer on top of an underlying language. Uh, The reality of Swift is Swift is a new language that is replacing multiple languages at once, but those languages have very different target audiences. Uh, So it's trying to appeal to systems programmers, which are people who work on core OS, uh, developer tooling like compilers and all that stuff, people who are working on low-level servers, all that stuff. Those people typically work in C and C++. You have app development people who are coming from the world of Objective-C, Uh, For some reason, they decided, why not, let's try to appeal to scripters and web developers as well, Uh, although a lot less on the web development front, I would say, Uh, especially now that IBM is out of the picture. Uh, So it's a substitute for scripting languages like Ruby, Perl, Python, etc. Chris Lattner, when he was interviewed on the Accidental Tech Podcast, episode 205, uh, laid out their world domination plan for Swift, and I think that world domination plan is actually part of what's wrong with swift and why it has this sort of incoherent identity crisis all of these languages that swift is replacing have different priorities and value systems based on who their audiences are and uh that impacts like what their needs and wants are and unfortunately like I don't I'm not the kind of person who believes that one language that is trying to do it all is going to do it better than all of the focused languages. And I'm going to use a concrete example from one of my side projects to illustrate exactly how this this manifests itself in the Swift language. And if you've heard a lot of people complain about Swift, you've probably heard them talking about exactly this, substrings.
0: Oy oy, oy, oy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You see exactly where I'm going. So I specifically chose substrings because uh, amongst the things that software do the most, they read files and they process text. And substrings are text processing. Uh, This is an example from Celestia, which was my uh, Gemini browser. I needed to write a parser for GemText, which is the markup language used in Gemini. And uh, GemText is relatively similar to markdown, except it tends to do stuff more with prefixes at the start of the line instead of uh, inlining stuff. So if you put a pound sign at the start of your line, it's a header. If you put double pound, it's a second level header, three times pound sign, it's third level header. Uh, If you start with an equals and an open, uh, a closing brace, it's an arrow that indicates a link and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, So generally, if you're making a GUI browser... With formatting, uh, you you don't want to show those special characters. You're just going to communicate the intent of that line with formatting instead. So you're going to strip out the the prefix and you're going to get the substring of what comes after that prefix. So strings are text, substrings are accessing a specific range of that original text. Uh, Usually you do this by uh, passing the starting character and the length of how many more characters you want to get. In most programming languages, when you call a substring function, it returns a string, and you can immediately use it in any context that you could use the original text. Swift doesn't do that. (laughs) Swift returns a substring type instead, which sometimes behaves like a string, sometimes it does not. Uh, And, like, that sounds infuriating, but there's a legitimate, legitimate reason why it's like this. So, if you returned a string type, That would need to allocate memory for a new string that contains the rest of that line of text. So let's say I'm just removing that uh, initial pound sign from a header line. And the header line, for some godforsaken reason, is a thousand characters long. And let's just generalize and say that each character is a byte because we're typing in ASCII in 2021. Your new string that you've allocated is 999 bytes. So at this moment in memory, your total... Use of memory for both of these strings is 1,999 bytes. Now let's go to how Swift does it. If you return this weird substring type instead, it uses the existing string's memory in that substring storage. And it it provides a facade to access those 999 characters that you need uh, from your substring. So your total usage of memory is 1,000 bytes, not 1,999. So you've saved... Nine hundred ninety-nine bytes. It's actually a bit less savings than that because substring type still does have a uh, size in memory, but it, it's tiny, and it's this is more to illustrate what the intent of this decision is than to be one hundred percent accurate.
0: Right, but even if it's like a hundred, a uh, thousand and one, who cares at this point, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. This is perfectly reasonable behavior for certain contexts. If you're doing systems programming, if you're writing like the kernel of an operating system and for some reason you're (laughs) using a substring in your kernel, like you would write in C or C++, you are much, much likelier to require this level of control. In most application development and scripting contexts, you probably won't care most of the time, though I will argue that it is definitely nice to have it as an option. Swift makes this the only way to get access to substrings. It is the only API on the string that lets you access a substring. If you want a real string, you need to explicitly convert it by passing it to the default constructor. That's not hard, but it's friction, and it's a burden of explicitness that's pushed onto the majority of the users to address a problem that only a minority of the users are going to need to address.
0: It's like having R mode on by default.
1: Yep. And I'm exactly going to show you why that's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't actually know why, if you don't know the technical explanation why substring is this way, you can actually screw yourself and have the opposite problem of what substring was supposed to solve. So we're going back to the thousand character string example. Let's say instead of stripping the first character of that text, you just want to get the last two characters of that text. You can get back a substring type by calling that substring method. And let's say that for the, for the use case you are developing in your application, the substring facade behaves enough like a string that you can just use it as is. So you hang on to a reference to that substring uh, object, which represents two characters. You throw away the thousand character string the trick question how much memory is your two character substring using right now
0: mm, i would say let's say 2000 bytes because it's keeping the old one i don't know why in memory and then it's keeping a copy in memory
1: too it's just the thousand bytes because it's it's still retaining okay. the original string the for thing. its okay. storage and it holds so on to that, that reference as long as the substring exists well it's not that bad but you're still holding on to 998 bytes you don't need. And I I mean, like, this is a small example. I'm just using these numbers because they're convenient. Uh, If you're using, like, massive CSV files like we do at work, uh, the story can change rather quickly. And the only way to know that this is the case is to go read the following note in the substring class documentation. Don't store substrings longer than you need them to perform a specific operation. A substring holds a reference to the entire storage of the string it comes from, not just the portion it presents, even when there is no other reference to the original string. Storing substrings may, therefore, prolong the lifetime of string data that is otherwise no longer accessible, which can appear to be memory leakage. This is exactly the opposite Hmm. problem of what substring was meant to solve. But instead of putting the burden on the systems programmer, which is conscious of these implementation details and trade-offs, the burden is on every single programmer who uses Swift to do substrings.
0: But at least there's a comment in the code base, which means there's documentation.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's one of the rare places the Swift (laughs) documentation team actually put a note. (laughs) I have a proposal for this. I, I I'm honestly shocked that no one has seemingly proposed this or it has been rejected. I don't know. I don't pay attention to Uh-oh. the Swift evolution stuff.
0: I'm worried now.
1: You shouldn't be worried because it's just common sense. So replace the default implementation of substring with what everyone expects from substring, which is just return a copy of a string and add a method called subsequence or whatever, just like not substring. It does exactly what the current substring method does so that people who know what they want can go get it, but it's not the default. <laughs> that sounds fair. I thought so too. Now, this is one example. Swift's standard library is just packed full of baffling shit like this. That's sort of my issue with Swift, is in trying to be a language for everyone, it is a language for no one. And Swift evolution, unfortunately, is kind of this... Weird place where uh, people who do lots of low-level programming and programming language nerds gather and throw out a bunch of random shit that they want to play with in their code. And a surprising amount of it makes it into the Swift language. And because Swift is not mature enough as a platform right now to have established norms for how Swift code should look like, people incorporate every goddamn feature of this language into their code for fun. And then people who go and get uh, libraries off of GitHub or whatever to actually like help them get their job done are stuck learning a bunch of, like, arcane features that honestly probably no one should be using and probably shouldn't have made it in the language in the first place. Um, I-, I consider Swift to be a weird drunk drawer collection of various language features from languages that were re- relatively trendy in the last 10 years, uh, which is kind of a parallel to C++, which was kind of this junk drawer of features that <laughs> were popular in programming languages 20 years ago. Uh, and we are kind of repeating the same mistake with Swift, except now we're just screwing everyone except to, instead of just the low-level programmers who were using C++ at the time. Uh, so that at a high level is my philosophical divide with Swift. It's that it doesn't really solve any of the problems that Objective-C had better than Objective-C. It just invents new classes of different problems, the areas where it is a better language are namely in the space of safety. And I think that a lot of the gains that you're going to see in safety benefit uh, large development teams uh, with lots of sub teams working on various disparate parts, parts of the apps or sub libraries where they are trying to coordinate large releases and having that added safety benefits those developers. I think at a small to medium large, uh, st- small to medium large, st- small to <laughs> Small to medium-sized development houses are probably not going to see any significant gain in performance. Uh, Not performance, but uh, productivity. Or really, like, I I don't think you're going to benefit significantly from the safety either uh, in Swift. And it just feels like a downgrade more than an upgrade in many respects.
0: Mm, You're... Okay, I th- I think you're making a good point, but th- throughout the way, throughout the episode, I was thinking about a couple of things that, while I enjoy, I could see that uh, even if we made fun of like substrings as R mode on by default, I kind of feel that sometimes Objective C dynamism at runtime was al- also R mode on by default, and and I think the best example I can give you for this is. A long, long time ago, uh, we took uh, or we had some might say we abused a bit too much of the responder (laughs) chain in our iOS app. And it was time to kind of restructure uh, a major part of the application, which was at the base of the application bootstrapping and all that fun stuff uh, without going into too much details. And just making sure to move logic that is listening to events on the responder chain was an event uh i'm trying to find a better word but it was scary to do too because you end up in a session where everything and nothing can happen and it's like you need and now you need to as a developer you need to to think about all the possibilities that might have happened and you more or less go on uh on the chase in your code base figure out oh yeah but like right, where did i made an implicit dependencies with those like oh let's figure out at runtime and one thing i've realized with that is you kind of need to backtrack to what you were thinking maybe two years ago three four five years ago which is not that i'm gonna say you never want to do but you never want to outsmart yourself three years later is you see what i mean you don't want to push it you don't want to Spend all your brain energy to debug a pro or to code a solution to a problem, thinking that oh I will never have to debug it or uh, stuff like that. Because when you have to debug it, you need to be a bit smarter than you were before. Yeah, and and that's why I realized that it's easy to get burned with a lot of those dynamic feature in Objective C because oh it makes sense like I don't care about the message like, it's like I'll just send a message and then, poof somebody will reply. And it's like, oh yeah, it makes sense. It's an easy solution to your problem. And then, but then when you do that everywhere in your application, you do, um, you do that everywhere in your application, you then realize that, and then you need to start to refactor that. You kind of realize that maybe you've again went the R mode on by default there.
1: Yeah, uh, responder chain in particular, like I, I, I see that more as a framework problem than a particular uh, language problem. Or uh, at um, least it's not, it's not foundation, it's like UI no, kit. I see app I kit. see what
0: you mean, but it is a feature in UIKit kit and even in AppKit that is built using the powerfulness of the dynamic runtime of Adjective C. Yeah. Like without it it wouldn't exist.
1: It's true. Uh it, it's still kind of outside the scope of what I was planning on discussing, but it, it it's yeah, okay. Yeah, but... It's like I, I understand that there's always a way to overuse technologies right. that have good uses, and I think Responder Chain is kind of one of them. Uh, Fair, but yeah, it, it, it's like I, I think the blame there is not necessarily on Objective C for having this thing. It's the framework users decided to go a little bit overboard.
0: I think what I was trying to say more is like when you give the tools to developers, they might make the wrong choices. So having are like having tools or APIs, even in a foundation layer that makes it straightforward to do certain architecture decisions and again uh we could say that in swift the idea of like s- the system uh development optimization and it mindset of making sure swift is performant to work on the system has affected the language in bad places uh, a lot especially if you're just an app developer and i would even say that sometimes the it's a bit too easy to get to burn yourself or you shoot yourself in the foot with Dynamism in Objective-C. And even if it fits with the advantages of of a good language for app development, uh, it's really easy to sometimes, it's too easy, I feel, sometimes in Objective-C to do bad things. And that's my main, not main problem, but my main gripe with it, even if it has good qualities as an app development language.
1: Yep, that's fair. Uh, Like I said, not a perfect language um but <laughs> yeah yeah for sure but yeah uh let's move on to swift ui because you mentioned responder chain what if there was no responder chain
0: oh yo 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 uh,
1: we're we're not going to talk about that this episode i i am not drunk enough for that uh, <laughs> so uh swift ui has two main goals uh so if you're not familiar swift ui is a new ui framework that launched uh, less than two years ago. Uh, so yeah. Uh, two main goals, officially sanctioned declarative user interface framework. Uh, so a declarative user interface framework is you return a representation of what your UI is instead of returning the UI itself. Uh, this maybe won't make as much sense to non-technical users. Actually, the fact that it's declarative doesn't matter as much as something else I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and also, it is one common declarative language for user interfaces across all of Apple's platforms. Previously, each platform had its own language. Uh, UIKit was on iOS and tvOS, AppKit was on the Mac, and WatchKit was on Watch. Compared to Swift, where I object to the base premise of the language, I'm actually on board with Swift UI to some degree. Uh, but like I Ooh. mentioned, it's young, so it has a lot of room to grow. And I believe and hope that a lot of the pain points I'm going to... Uh, list on this episode are going to be addressed either next month or in the coming years. Um, a lot of my complaints are going to boil down to things that are missing or inadequate compared to either UIKit or AppKit or uh, similar UI frameworks on the web because SwiftUI is Apple's entry into the FRP UI Framework world. So, FRP is a word that we've used a lot on this show. It means functional reactive programming. It is the trendy way to develop web applications, and some might argue also to some degree mobile applications over the last decade. It simplifies how you need to reason about your UI code as a developer to make complex things much easier. Uh, we'll talk about exactly what complex means in a bit. And the way it changes how you reason about your code is you think of your UI code now as a pure function that takes in the state of your application in one side and it spits out the correct UI for that state on the other side. All you need to focus on as a developer, well, in quotes, according to the magic promise that FRP gives you, all you need to do is focus on giving the good result for the good state and the framework will handle making... all the minimum changes to the actual UI to keep everything in sync. So I personally have quite a bit of experience with FRP in a web context. I've shipped one large project, two small projects, and I am stir- I've started my second large project this week at work uh, using FRP. As with a lot of web technology, it is definitely overhyped and jammed into contexts that it doesn't really belong in. Uh, if you've seen a PayPal checkout button, for some reason that's a React application. I don't know. It's weird. The button itself? The button. It's a button. Doesn't do anything. It's just a button, but it's a React application. I don't get it. (laughs) Sometimes
0: I... Okay, and I know you'll take that a bit personal, but sometimes I don't understand quote-unquote modern web development.
1: Dude, I'm a web developer and I don't fucking understand (laughs) modern web development.
0: Okay, that's what I assume too.
1: Okay. Uh, In projects that cross a minimum complexity threshold... I believe that FRP leads to more reliable and more easily testable applications. And this is generally good. Once you get over the learning curve, the time that you would have wasted trying to keep your house of cards from crumbling uh, with a traditional UI approach on the web can be reinvested into delivering a richer user experience. And as a developer, anything that lets me reallocate my time towards the fun part of my job is welcome. Uh, So... I am actually quite favorable to FRP, which is why I was kind of excited about SwiftUI. Unfortunately, when compared to FRP on the web, SwiftUI doesn't have as appealing a value proposition. So contrary to popular belief, everyone likes to think FRP magic solution solves everything. It makes rainbows (laughs) all the time. Actually, FRP has weaknesses, but they are generally limited issues for the environments where FRP is popular. Uh, namely the web and mobile applications. So FRP is bad at dealing with animations unless the underlying technology or framework provides sufficient affordances to do so. FRP is bad at dealing with rich user interactions. So if you have uh, user interface elements that a user is capable of freely manipulating, it kind of falls on its face for that. <laughs> And the closer you get to writing desktop class applications in FRP, the more of an issue these weaknesses become because the expectations of users in those environments leans more heavily into the things that FRP is bad at. If I had to actually summarize what FRP is good at, FRP excels at building scalable view hierarchies that transition gracefully between a number of finite states in fixed layouts. This works great for the web, works great for mobile, Kind of doesn't work for anything else. But it gets a lot of help on the web. So CSS really doesn't get enough credit for the success of FRP working on the web. Uh, If you're not aware, CSS is a language that lets you define a set of rules for how an HTML tag should be presented visually on screen. This originated in 98, I think, with Netscape 4 uh, and Internet Explorer 4.0. Point something at the time. Uh, And importantly, what it does is it lets you separate the presentation of your HTML tags from the tags themselves. And an important thing to know about FRP frameworks is they don't care about your CSS, they only care about the tags themselves. This is good because it means that you can present visually anything in an FRP app that you can do in a non FRP app. There's complete parity between non FRP and FRP. This is not the case with SwiftUI. If you decide to write an application in pure SwiftUI and you ignore the escape valve for UIKit and AppKit, which we'll discuss later, the number of properties and extension points you can tinker with as a developer on any part of the SwiftUI toolkit of stuff you can use is much more limited than their equivalents in UIKit and AppKit. It's kind of like if uh, if you were writing an a non frp app and you had access to 100 percent of css and then you write an frp app and you get access to css 1.0 uh for, for context right now css is like css 3.0 something because it just keeps going it's like the it's like html5 it's the last version that they just keep patching over and over again
0: oh really okay i didn't know they did that too for css
1: i believe it is yeah Um, at least that's the way it is in my brain. I don't know if people have, (laughs) if there's actually a CSS4 or CSS5. I'm sorry. I never picked up on it. Uh, it stopped, the counter stopped at three for me. So it's, that's kind of how it feels is you have a very limited subset of properties you can tinker with in SwiftUI compared to, uh, doing things directly in ui get or AppKit, where you can tinker with all the public properties you can just hijack the draw rect method if you want and go crazy uh you can do weird shit with core animation layers like swift ui does not give you that level of flexibility and it's by design but it also means there are certain things you just cannot make happen in swift ui uh or at least not easily um That brings me to my next point of something that is not easy to do compared to a world with CSS. And that is that SwiftUI doesn't really have some sort of equivalent to CSS classes. Uh, What CSS classes allow you to do is sort of set rules to uh, various CSS classes that sort of represent presets. So here's a concrete example from one of our work applications. We have a vacation calendar. And each day on that calendar can have one of many uh, visual states. So it can be a day shift where everything is yellow. uh, And if you're in a mobile UI, you get a sun icon. Uh, If you're night shift, you get a blue uh, calendar cell. And then you have a moon icon if you go in mobile mode. If you're not working that day, you just get a hollow white box uh, and if you're inel- ineligible for that day because you don't have enough vacation hours for that day, or all of the vacation slots are used by other employees, or it's outside of the legal uh, date range you can select, it just goes gray. And you can make more complex rules that say, oh, well, if I go, if let's say my mouse is over a day shift cell and it's in hover state, I can customize the appearance of that combination of factors. Um, so this makes Customizing the visual appearance of uh, distinct visual states in your application, incredibly easy. And the way it's organized in a CSS file is really intuitive. You have, let's just for the sake of uh, simplicity here, just say you have the class name, you have an open bracket, you have all of the property changes that happen for that class and close bracket. So this makes it very easy to understand that for this particular state, these visual changes are going to change. It reduces the amount of knowledge your designers need to have about the internal workings of your application because all that matters to them is that the CSS class attribute is set to the right name. They don't actually need to uh, interface directly with properties of your model objects or whatever. In SwiftUI, no styling system exists. If you want to define the base appearance of a view you in your SwiftUI application, you go clutter your view code because it's not separate. It's part of your code. Any additional states that your view has to handle turns each property on that uh, SwiftUI view into a massive conditional statement where you check if the state matches. And contrary to CSS, where you have the handy class attribute... Uh, this conditional statement is probably going to be directly addressing objects of your application instead of the middleman css class property that exists explicitly for styling which means if you've got developers uh, sorry if you've got designers writing code directly in your swift ui views they will have to be familiar with your model objects or you will need to create something that basically like emulates css classes for them uh, so that they can do their uh, styling without caring about the underlying objects. So that kind of sucks. And it's one of the things that uh, FRP is really good at is changing between preset states. Well, if you can't really change well between preset states because you don't have a good styling system, one of the good things that FRP can do for your application sort of falls apart. I want to go back to what I said about FRP not being good about animations because this is not a problem on the web because CSS3 animations are great and they have been the main way to animate between two sets of CSS properties for the last decade. If you, for some reason, are a web developer and you're still writing jQuery animations in 2021, uh, this might seem like a foreign concept. Uh, CSS3 animations are very different from what you are used to doing, but I highly recommend looking into them because they are incredibly powerful. They are a declarative approach to animation. They're incredibly customizable, and they are basically the fact that you don't have to worry about animations being a problem when doing FRP on the web. SwiftUI, on the other hand, once again, not great on this front. Uh, SwiftUI has some built-in animation types to handle the most basic cases of animations, uh, I looked at some custom animation tutorials and I was immediately reminded of my Game Jam games. Uh, so if you want to become a 2D game developer, go uh, learn some uh, Swift UI animations uh, because it's basically exactly that. Uh, you are expected to, as a developer, keep track of the from position, the to position, and calculate the in-between positions manually inside your review code. Uh, whereas there are more convenient ways to do things or more powerful ways to do things with css3 animations that do not require that level of uh nitpicking if you want to do massive uh view hierarchy animations where uh what's a good example like let's say there's a big mode change like you have an authenticated mode and an unauthenticated mode for I'm just going to use your app. I haven't used your app in a very long time, but I'm just going to use it as an example. So you have a logged out cache register UI and a logged in cache register UI. And let's say that the UI becomes like completely rearranged once you're logged in. Uh, And these rearrangements can happen at multiple levels of view hierarchy. In CSS, this is really easy. You just change the CSS class of the highest element on the thing. And you can define rules that say, if the parent class is this, you can rearrange your things. Again, this is like a nightmare to do in SwiftUI because there is no concept of this this higher level styling that applies universally across the entire view hierarchy. You just have to sort of, pass the data along to each individual view and make it propagate yourself and it's not great it's a tremendous pain in the ass uh so large-scale animations like forget about it with swift ui it's not not gonna happen so now we get back into my requests i i'm so good i'm giving solutions on the show today that's rare usually you just bitch i think everything has solutions on the show today although i'm I don't think these are going to solve every problem with SwiftUI. <laughs> so my requests for the CSS problems specifically in SwiftUI, SwiftUI really needs some kind of stylesheet system or some equivalent to CSS classes. Like this is, it should be a requirement of an FRP system on um, native UI that this kind of thing exists. Uh, it, do, it almost doesn't make sense to have an FRP UI framework in your software without this let me define the layout and appearance rules of my preset states cleanly in a file separate from the view implementation. Ideally, don't make me use Swift at all. Use something like CSS that you make up completely. Uh, Because sometimes when you try to implement things in Swift, you face weird implementation details again. Uh, If you want to uh, shape things, uh, sorry, not shape things. If you want to size objects uh, as a percentage of the parent view, You have to do some crazy proxy shit to get that to work. Whereas in uh, CSS, you can type with colon 50% and uh, yep, that's cool. Uh, Like, why are you making people go through these? uh, Like, I I understand the technical reason why. I know why you are doing these proxy objects because you don't want the views to be coupled directly. I get it. (laughs) but it's a shitty user experience when you're writing the code and people are coming from a world where they type with colon 50% and it just fucking works. Also richer animation support, uh, something that looks like CSS three animations because UI programmers shouldn't become part-time game developers to do anything non-standard in their app. Does that seem reasonable?
0: I think I'm a bad person to ask this because i have you don't su- have enough I've, css experience yeah yeah i suck so bad at css and literally we had a conversation about a week ago about yeah. that where i'm working on a web project for a personal web project ish and i'm like yeah Nick, I need help with css please help me save my save my life and as usual you're like oh come on it's super easy i'm like so yeah so <laughs> my c you know what my css experience is as extensive as my c experience from earlier
1: in the show fair enough Um, One of the things I will say, though, uh, a a lot of people in native development uh, environments uh, look negatively upon CSS because uh, they remember the old days of CSS when it was particularly bad and people didn't really know how to use it. And to be fair, it was bad back in the days when most people saw it because it just had a lot of really weird edge cases and complicated stuff. Nowadays, either people use CSS frameworks that do all of this for them, uh, which nullifies the complaints because they're just setting CSS classes on things and they're not really worrying about how it works, uh, which is a dubious approach sometimes. Uh, And the other thing is just uh, CSS has improved so much and people have really focused on what parts of CSS you should use and which parts you absolutely should not use uh, that uh, it's much less frustrating to use today. Uh, than it was way back in the day and if you're trying to build like modern application UIs, you should definitely look at flexbox because flexbox is incredibly powerful and it's what react basically copied to become <laughs> a, such a good layout uh tool for a bunch of people uh so yeah de- definitely go look at that but css isn't as bad as everybody uh makes it out to be that, that's uh how it was back in the 90s and early 2000s, but it does not deserve its negative reputation anymore. Okay, let's talk about what types of UIs that uh, SwiftUI facilitates. So I said earlier, FRP excels at building scalable view hierarchies that transition gracefully between a number of finite states and fixed layouts. What the fuck does that mean? Uh, Well, here are some apps that I think this applies to. All or 95% of watch apps. Uh, This makes sense because SwiftUI was designed as a watch UI framework first. And a lot of design decisions make a lot of sense if you consider it in that respect. Uh, So it it doesn't seem like there would be very many cases where SwiftUI would be anything less than adequate on the watch. So I would not worry about it in that scenario. I would say that about 90% of non-game phone apps... Uh, can run fine in SwiftUI. Uh, so that's cool. About eighty percent of web apps, uh, you could replace with a comparable SwiftUI UI, uh, if you wanted to. And this kind of makes sense if you're trying to pitch it against uh a combination of let's say Electron as a backend for your uh for your desktop app and then uh doing the front end work with React or something like that. Uh, you could probably. Uh, do most of those with Swift UI just fine. And then iPad apps that are focused on content consumption or light productivity. Uh, what I mean by light productivity is primarily interacting with lists and or buttons. Uh, anything more complicated than that kind of starts to fall apart. And of course, non-app extension targets like widgets and watch complications. Like, that's fine. You're not even trying to do buttons, even in most cases on these. You're just trying to display information. Uh, SwiftUI is great at displaying information. It's not really great at a lot of other things. Um, we have joked about it on past episodes, but basically anything right now that is implemented as relatively straightforward, you, uh, straightforward UI table view or UI collection view in an iOS app is much simpler to implement as a Swift UI view today. Uh, that's not to simple. are Much you're not... simpler. Much. Yes. I-, I thought you were being sarcastic for a second. No, no, I was no, like, no, why no, is he no, no, no. being sarcastic?
0: No, no, no I'm, I'm not at all. You're yeah. quite the inverse here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's significantly easier uh, to put together in SwiftUI. That's not to say that there aren't edge cases. They are always going to be. But uh, if you think of apps like Apple Music or the App Store, like those kinds of UIs are definitely much simpler uh, to implement in SwiftUI than they would be in UIKit or AppKit. What types of UIs does SwiftUI make harder or impossible to implement? Any app where users have a higher expectation of rich user interface than what we previously listed. So, When I was talking about CSS earlier, the reason FRP works so elegantly on the web is because your view state and what dictates your layout is completely separate. Those concerns don't interact at all. If your UI can be directly manipulated by the user, you unfortunately need to start entangling those two concerns together, and it gets really messy really quickly. And going back to sort of the selling points of why you would want to use FRP, the entire selling point of FRP is that it's supposed to facilitate the reasoning process of your developers. If writing interactive UIs make the reasoning process of your developers more complicated than it is in a traditional imperative UI framework, I'm not sure I actually believe you should be using FRP in that context. And to me, it just illustrates what I've been saying all along, which is that FRP is not a one-size-fits-all technology that you can apply to every context, much like it's not the good solution for all contexts in web development. You shouldn't be using FRP for your fucking PayPal button. You shouldn't be using FRP uh, for, like, Google Docs or anything like that either. Uh, It just wouldn't work as well, probably. And... This is kind of the fear I have about SwiftUI is I fear that in the pursuit of having a single UI framework that is used across all of their platforms, all of uh, Apple UI development is going to be shoehorned into being done through an FRP approach, whether it makes sense for that UI or not. Now, it's true that there are integration options that exist to allow uh, applications that mix SwiftUI and AppKit or UIKit together. To exist. So SwiftUI has an escape valve. It's a UI view representable, I believe it's called, which allows you to take UI views or NS views on the Mac and embed them within a SwiftUI app. So if there is something that is difficult or impossible to implement in SwiftUI, you can do it as, a, as the native uh, UI framework for either of those platforms and include it. The opposite is also possible UI views and NS views can also host SwiftUI views inside of them. Uh, both of these uh, escape valves do feel a little bit inelegant to use. I think they could benefit from being made a little bit cleaner. But there are some things that are just like not directly compatible, so it makes sense that there's some layer that needs to be there. The thing that sucks though is if you go to the mission that uh, Swift UI is one common UI language for all of Apple's platforms. If you have to actually resort to using the escape valve to interact with UIKit or AppKit. It feels counter to that goal and if you are trying to train developers with the idea that they can use SwiftUI as this universal tool to solve all problems, when you hit a use case that is not good for SwiftUI, uh, they might not have the skill set that they need to actually be able to do the job with UIKit or AppKit, which sucks. I was going to have a whole big rant about uh, tables because we did that on the post show after uh, <laughs> the last episode uh, where I ranted a really long time about how there's no equivalent to the finder list view or the iTunes list view that I can use in my app. So I would have to write my own and I basically have the choice between uh, embedding NS table on the Mac and uh, writing my own in UI kit or trying to implement my own in SwiftUI and probably explode in the process. Uh, I cut out that rant because I was afraid we were going to run uh, way too long, and that was probably the right thing. But I replaced that entire section with this following sentence, which is the issues with FRP not being suitable for interactive user interfaces are a major obstacle for adoption for heavier productivity apps, Uh, namely... Document-based apps, probably, and creativity apps, especially. Uh, Like I said earlier, um, it's about transitioning between presets, uh, a finite number of presets. And the problem is interactivity changes the things so that they're not really finite anymore. They're practically infinite because the user can do whatever the fuck they want. And it's not a good fit. So that's it for this section. We have one more point about SwiftUI after this, but did you have any notes on this section?
0: Uh, No, no, we can continue.
1: Okay. So the last big part of this episode is about SwiftUI tooling and documentation. <laughs> mm.
0: I wasn't sure if you would go there today.
1: I luckily ended up finding a uh, a draft of a previous uh section for this uh, from months ago, and I pretty much copy pasted it into this document. And that is the only reason we have a tooling and documentation section this episode, <laughs> because I did not have it ready at all otherwise. Um, so there are two major issues with SwiftUI documentation. The first one is that there's very little of it to begin with. And the second one is that when it's there, the form it's in isn't necessarily helpful because of how SwiftUI is implemented. SwiftUI is what we call a domain-specific language. Uh, DSLs, or domain-specific languages, are especially popular in uh, programming languages with metaprogramming and certain kinds of weird syntactic features. Uh, Ruby has a lot of this. Uh, A popular use of DSLs is to make descriptions look more like data and less like code, uh, which maps pretty well to what the goal of SwiftUI is. Uh, it's pretty good for expressing hierarchies and list of traits on members of that hierarchy, which again, that's kind of what SwiftUI is doing. However, DSLs often rely on abusing language features. <laughs> and because of this, things aren't always the way they appear to be. So Swift has this feature called result builders, and this is primarily what enables Swift UI. Um, it is effectively a custom syntax that has been built into Swift uh, to accommodate the builder design pattern, which you may be familiar with from other programming languages. And the problem is that much of Apple's documentation is program- programmatically generated. So in, in most programming languages, you can put comments in the code, but you can tag them specially as documentation comments. Uh, I don't remember how it you do it in uh, Swift. Is it triple slash? Yes.
0: Yes. Okay. If I recall correctly demo to comment, yes.
1: Yeah, okay. So, like you you just change the comment prefix and it just says, "Oh, this is this is suitable for public publication within our documentation," let's say. And a program comes along that's automated and scrapes all of those documentation comments and associates it with whatever is declared next to it and renders it in a nice web page. That's cool, except if you're using funky language features the program probably doesn't care or know about the language features and it just treats it like regular Swift code. But the entire point of abusing those language features is that your DSL doesn't look like regular Swift code. So even if you look at the documentation, you don't necessarily know how to map what shows up in the documentation to how it should show up in the DSL. So that really sucks. And it it really just like is another example of you needing to worry about the implementation details of how shit is done in swift when you probably shouldn't as a new developer like to be honest the builder pattern can be quite obtuse even when you do it without uh weird language features like documentation is already rough for those kinds of patterns when you know how it works And unfortunately, the entire programmatically generated documentation for SwiftUI requires you to know how the magic behind SwiftUI works in order to be able to understand it. Or you can do what I did and just guess. That's a good idea, too. Um, The same thing that applies to the documentation also applies to error messages from the Swift compiler. It will tell you that you're using the magic that you don't understand underneath SwiftUI wrong, but... If you don't know how the magic works, that will mean absolutely nothing to you. And the compiler, unfortunately, doesn't know how to express that to you in a way that will make sense to you if you don't know how it works. Which is a lot of the issues that you see with people uh, who are trying to use SwiftUI. They're just like, I have no fucking clue what any of these error <laughs> messages mean. Um, so I have four proposed solutions to this problem. Four. So more solutions? Uh, I'm full of solutions tonight. Are uh, you sick of something? Uh, the only solution I don't have is a solution for my shitty modem. So. Oh, ho, 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 ho. So solution number one. Don't require Swift UI to rely on fringe language features. Honestly, this one, I'm too late to this. Like, it's too late. It's too late, yeah. Swift UI already exists. There's code in production. Like, I can't do anything about this. However, I did think of another library that I interact with, uh, in my work, which has a similar problem to this. And it is the Nest, uh, Elasticsearch library. So Nest is the high-level Elasticsearch library in C Sharp. Uh, Basically, they have, like, two ways you can interact with any operation uh, in this library. So you can either uh, put together a query or an indexing operation as a method chain. So you just do, like, uh, something.index query. paren, paren, dot, and then you're going to add a property to that, dot, or add a property to that, dot, add a property to that, and then you just have, like, this giant line that you separate with line breaks uh, <laughs> that just does a bunch of shit in a row. And this is, like, convenient if you if you want to, I guess. Like, it, some people are really com- comfortable with this thing, but sometimes it's really obtuse, and it's not quite sure how... Uh, Like sometimes you return a different type than the thing you were chaining and the entire thing falls apart. Uh, And documentation is not always the greatest for this uh, because the arguments sometimes take lambdas and yeah. Uh, It can get overly complex, but they actually recognize that this is not an approach that will benefit everyone who uh, codes with this library. So they actually added an entire alternative API, which is just, here is an instance of an object you can configure it and then you can call the method to run the thing at the end so you can just configure it that way instead of using our complex method chaining api and both are completely equivalent you can just have the choice between something that is more universally approachable with the descriptor object or if you want to use something that is uh, more advanced but maybe more syntactically concise
0: right it's it's providing a solution to move away and it it seems to be a, a A recurring topic from on my side today it's moving away from our mode on
1: yeah or at least you have the choice between easy mode and hard mode if you want to. exactly and everything that is possible in one mode is also possible in the other which kind of lets you wonder why they actually put the advanced mode there if everything is there but whatever it's not my business uh but it's it's nice to have uh that thing. And in certain cases, you do actually want to use the descriptor object because uh, the context you're in doesn't actually allow you to do the method chain or whatever. So, the second solution make development tools more conscious of SwiftUI. Um, this seems kind of inevitable to me. Uh, if Swift UI ever takes off as the primary UI platform for Apple pl- platforms, you don't want all UI related documentation going forward to be notably worse than what we had with Cocoa and UIKit. You don't want all of the compiler errors to be notably worse than what we had with Cocoa and UIKit. So like the hack here is since result builders are now a generalized feature of the Swift language that are not just used for Swift UI, which previously was not the case. Uh, you can rewrite Swift doc to actually make it understand that and present auto generated documentation of Swift UI in a more sane way because it understands how the feature works instead of just leaving it in the raw code form. Um, another thing you can do is make some sort of Swift compiler middleware that can intercept the most common classes of Swift UI errors and either suggest contextual fix-me's or at least give a more helpful alternative error message than the garbage we're stuck with now. Um, and maybe if you want like some feel-good tasks for someone to f- get some clapping at WWEC, every year go to Stack Overflow and find the top 25 to 30 SwiftUI error messages people don't understand and make a better alternative.
0: And this is a this is a journey they they're already on, as far as I recalled. I yeah, think th- that's th- what th- I
1: was gonna say. I I've been hearing that they're sort of getting on this journey. I don't know the details, so if you do have details, I would love to hear them. Yeah,
0: I have to figure it out because I think the last detail I've seen was maybe with ah, uh, is it with Swift five something? It's one of the minor versions of Swift five where they 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 talked about improving the error handling. And no, it's improving the. Error processing of the compiler and then figuring out where the error is on the line, all that fun stuff, uh, that would really benefit Swift UI.
1: But do you know if it's Swift UI specific or it's global to all of? No, if I builders?
0: recall correctly, it's yeah, it's it for all. Again, it's like when they added the feature, the the result builder features to Swift, the language to mm. make Swift UI. Possible, and it's kind of going back to this same logic. Say, so, yeah, we in the past few years we've improved uh, the error handling of Swift itself, but with the new features, we didn't account for them. Not saying that directly, but kind of implying that, so that we need to reconsider what should we do for error management and all that fun stuff. And that can be found. I have to figure it out. Uh, but I, if I recall correctly, there was a big blog post on the blog, uh, Swift blog about that.
1: Okay. And my, oh, wait, how many solutions have I given? One, two, three. Okay. Yeah, that's now the I, fourth one. No, it's my third one. So my third one is going to be. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, make interface builder stay relevant and uh, just change interface builder so that it writes out Swift UI view subclasses instead of nibs. This is not a wacky concept. .NET has done this for at least a decade. Uh, Mm -hmm. So if you use the Visual Designer in Visual Studio, uh, you get two files out of that. You get, uh, let's say, view.designer.cs, which is the code representation of what shows up in their version of Interface Builder. And you have view.cs, which is where you can extend and override that view subclass. Uh, That seems like a reasonable approach to me uh, for uh, something like that. If people don't actually have to write as much of your wacky DSL by hand, a lot of these issues become expert level problems instead of everyone's problem. And that is an approach that I I enjoy uh, is delegating the expert level problems to the experts and not making them everyone's problems. Uh, we do already have limited support for visual editing of Swift UI views, uh, just so nobody shits on me for not bringing this up. Uh, if you have the uh, preview for a Swift UI view open, you can click on the various subviews uh, in the preview and on the right side inspector of Xcode, you can tweak certain properties. Uh, that's nice, but it's not as nice as IB. And maybe it's just because SwiftUI sucks at interactive UI that we don't have rich drag and drop support like we did with IB. I don't know, but it would be really nice to have something closer to IB than what we have now. While we're at it, uh, I am one of the three people who really like storyboards in Interface Builder. And I think that now that the SwiftUI app lifecycle stuff exists, it would be nice if storyboards could get a similar treatment to what I am proposing uh, for individual views where you can just have a storyboard editor that lets you map out your application entirely visually and not have to write it out yourself because it's kind of a pain to do it all yourself.
0: Don't get me wrong. Storyboards are great for a team of one. Yes. So I'm not surprised that you like them, but for scaling them for a bigger team, not so much. Uh, By the way, just... Uh, real-time follow-up the thing i was referring to is was in swift 5.3 it was announced in uh, 2019 but it shipped with 5.3 in september 2020 and it is named scrolling the new diagnostic architecture that really there was improvement in 5.2 and then they build on, on top of that in 5.3 so they've been doing that a lot in the past year under swift 5 and under a
1: lot of the minor versions Cool, so I'll go read that and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, last solution for uh, this documentation problem is just human power, right? Tailor-made documentation to any framework that relies <laughs> on a DSL. Uh, machines can only do so much on their own uh, and having good usage-based documentation uh, written by people who in theory are maintaining this framework with an Apple or, or are using the framework with an Apple would be great, to actually uh, do things. There are many things right now, like um, uh, like we, we talked about how SwiftUI is great for lists and collections. And there are so many different types of lists and collections in SwiftUI that it's not necessarily clear uh, what the trade-offs are when you're using various kinds of lists or stacks or whatevers. Uh, and having some sort of article on the website that actually like Uh, demystifies what the difference is would be very useful. Uh, There are a ton of different things that you could do like this. You could have a Swift UI cookbook. You could do like literally anything because they have nothing right now. So literally, well, that's not true. They have some things. They have that tutorial that you write. It's not enough. It's really not enough, especially if this is going to be positioned as the future of UI development on Apple platforms. You really need better shit, especially since like Objective-C uh in AppKit and all that stuff like the amazing thing is that like the AppKit book that they wrote for Next Step was more or less like entirely usable for the first like five years of Mac OS 10 because it was <laughs> effectively the same frameworks and it was just like basically republished onto the Apple website except with new screenshots. Um so I don't know. We need some Richer documentation for Swift UI because right now it's very hard to take it seriously. Not only does it have all the other issues that I mentioned on it, but it's just like it, it, it feels like some weird uh, sorcery shit where you have to learn magic spells and you don't understand. Right. Like it makes no sense. Um, and no, watching WWDC sessions is not a sufficient replacement for documentation, unfortunately.
0: Right. Uh, I'd like to note that in the recent years, especially with Swift, uh, again, uh, it, it created a lot of influx of maybe new love or even a new influx of types of dev looking at apple platform and it really feels for sure since 2015 2016 that there's a lot of the um a lot of backing from some portion of the ios and even general apple development community taking ownership or even like apple is not doing great documentation will do it for other devs and I could not imagine, or I recall in 2008, 2009, 2010, when we started to work on the App Store or with the iOS SDKs. And even if there was way more web presence from iOS developers and Stack Overflow and stuff, like what has been the output of the community in the recent years is marvelous. We would like to see, and I agree with you, we would like to see that from Apple, but it's crazy how the community has evolved to just fill in the, the fill in the blanks
1: yeah the one thing that is kind of frustrating though is that with how quickly swift and swift ui are evolving uh this is less of a problem for swift now that swift 5 has right. happened but swift ui is still in rapid changing uh because it is less than two years old yes uh it is incredibly hard to know if the thing you are looking at is still relevant or not
0: oh i agree i agree i'm not saying that it is kind of the the solution to all the problems uh it being community driven i think apple's as a first party provider of those development tools should be there and then the community can continue improving giving you examples playing with demos or saying like, here's this nice trick you can do with this maybe lesser known feature that yes is documented but may you might not have all the developers spend like maybe half a day just looking at that part of the and then this person on their blog decided to say hey i 'll do videos and i 'll do tutorial to explain it to you maybe a different way for a different type of learning, uh, but right now they 're back to the basis. We need to explain the base foundation of let's say Swift UI for everybody to understand because even that is lacking on apple
1: so that was pretty much all I had for Swift UI. Now we can go into the conclusion i didn 't write, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of rushing to get everything ready in time, and I did not finish in time, but whatever. Uh, I I do want to shout out one thing that I really do like in Swift, uh, which is a framework and not, uh, not part of the language per se. And that is the network framework. Uh, When I was implementing Mm. the connection to the Gemini protocol, uh, I love what they have going on in the network framework. And I think it's really well-made. It's just very poorly documented. (laughs) What a surprise. Uh, (laughs) But once you figure out how it works, it is really cool. And I like it. Um, is that the only positive thing I have to say? Yeah, pretty much. Uh,
0: <laughs> I'd like to know that on the positive things you mentioned, you did bring up possible solutions. So that's a positive. Or that's multiple positives.
1: Oh, yeah. I have plenty of solutions for all the problems. Doesn't mean Apple's going to do them. <laughs> True. Like a lot of things I do in life. Um, but yeah. So so this is the thing. is I think... There are a lot of parallels that are interesting about the issues I have with Swift and Swift UI and the issues I have with the Mac and iPad uh, and this is kind of another evergreen topic on the show. sometimes I feel like the the Mac and the iPad are trying to be broader uh, trying to appeal to broader audiences than what they should focus on, which is their strengths and weaknesses and I think Swift is a similar uh situation in which. It is targeting way too broad for uh, what its target audience is as a programming language. And because of it, it is suffering. And especially because they are mis-targeting a lot of the things they are doing to target low-level developers more so than higher-level developers. It's really just kind of a baffling decision. And SwiftUI in particular is kind of concerning because it feels like a thing that is very much being done in the web way which is something is trendy we need to get on this bandwagon right now and they did it and they kind of half did it uh because they didn't realize what made it work on the web and and or react native really and they don't really have any solutions today uh to make up for what is missing uh and this is where i'm more hopeful the swift ui will get better but as i said Uh, There are some domains that this is just not well-suited for, and I'm saying this from tinkering with this technology a lot over the past two years, and I'm very worried to see if Apple is just going to try to do the same thing here, and instead of making this a focused tool for specific uh scenarios they are going to try to stretch it out so that it is a universal tool for everything and i don't think that is appropriate much like i don't think the other three technologies we talked about are appropriately focusing on what they should be so that is kind of my high level overview of what apple is doing right now is they are having a trouble with targeting and focusing their projects especially software uh to the point that it's really hard to get excited about them because it feels like they're sort of not quite conscious of what is going on and introspecting correctly about uh, their software.
0: Good. I have one question for the conclusion. Yeah. And it is about some of the side projects you mentioned. Yeah. So are they getting dropped completely or are they getting rewritten without Swiftens and UI?
1: I don't know. Um so the the thing is i really can't get excited about writing swift it is really infuriating like about the only good thing about swift aside from the network framework is i can use swift playgrounds on the ipad to write stuff whenever i'm bored um so Mm -hmm. like that that flexibility is nice uh but i honestly don't know what i'm going to do with these side projects i am considering maybe just writing them in objective c and i'm going to be very sad the day that we can't do that anymore right Uh, because that's code base is just going to die off. Um but, but I would be way more excited about doing that than I would be about writing in Swift and Swift UI right now. Hmm.
0: Okay. That that might be a-, a good idea that it's like take the time to do it just before the uh, the you get the rug gets swapped for Objective C and then Objective C mm-hmm. dies, because maybe it's one of the we might be exaggerating a bit, but we never know. Like dubdub is in about three weeks, so uh, but it might be one of the last moments where you can build Objective C app on Apple modern Apple OSs. So maybe a a good idea for your side project as kind of a one last time. Farewell. <laughs> yeah farewell it indeed. just kind
1: of sucks that like these are the apps i wish i had all this time and they're gone <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah the other thing is i kind of want to shout out uh C retain which is this really cool twitch stream i found a couple uh weeks ago uh which is basically focused on people like me uh is people who prefer objective sweet uh, objective swift yeah objective c to swift uh, and would like to continue to have the language flourish somewhere, if not on Apple platforms. Uh, and I have a whole bunch of issues with how GnuStep is right now, but uh, it's still really interesting to see people actually putting their money where their mouth is and developing software on GnuStep and porting OS X applications to GnuStep. And I learned a whole lot about... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I learned a whole lot about how... Um, new step is actually only about a year behind on modern objective c uh whereas i thought it was significantly more uh behind than that um so i don't know it, it's pretty interesting uh i'm i don't think i'm going to be writing on new step because honestly i don't really want to write apps that look like they were made for next but uh i don't know it is a possible avenue uh, maybe I will just become a Go developer. I don't know. We're we're still in the in the figuring things out stages, right? Uh, but like, I I still want those apps. Like my desire for those apps is not gone. It's just I have to figure out what I'm doing with them.
0: Good. Is that it? Yeah. So you can find the show notes for this episode at Limitless Possibility slash 161, so 161. You can also find our back catalog at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at Limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Lukonosh, That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick
1: at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A.
0: And we'll see you in two weeks. See
1: you in two weeks.